So some of you have heard my story that I was a misfit in junior high, and the last thing my friends or teachers thought that I would ever do with my life is be a pastor, but I had this sense that God wanted me to be a pastor, but I didn't ever think that meant being a preacher. So when I had my first opportunity to preach, I was still in seminary, we were just married, I was so nervous. And my first opportunity that was given me was at Pacific Garden Mission. To this day, the longest ongoing mission that has been going on for 138 years, the longest one in the country. So that's where I was supposed to go preach, Pacific Garden Mission. And I'm a, I'm a Chicago guy, right? So I grew up on the north side in Evanston, and Evanston didn't look anything like State Street where the Pacific Garden Mission. So I was out of my comfort zone in every way because I was going to have to preach because I was in the city and uh, I was just really nervous. So I remember we got there as a group of us from church and we started touring the facilities, this great old brick building and going through the catacombs of this building, looking at all the different phases of the ministry, including where the guys slept at night and where the kitchen was and where we'd be eating and where I'd be preaching. And then before dinner, uh, we went to pray. And so there was this little room and it was dark and it was concrete floor and there were some chairs set up in a circle. And before I knew it, I met this guy named Harry Solnier. They call him Hallelujah Harry who's been leading this ministry for 40 years, went on another six years. He led it for 46 years. He's like 79 years old when I met him. And um, he's in a suit and tie. I don't think I was. And um, he says, well, let's pray. All right, we're going to pray. And he drops to his knees right on the concrete floor. I'm going, oh, okay, this is serious. We're getting on our knees to pray. So he leads in prayer, and there's just this earnestness and drive to his, to his prayers. And then as, you know, as happens, you know, someone stops praying, and then another person's going to start praying, right? And sometimes that takes a matter of a few seconds, right? Well, Harry didn't have time for a pause. So the minute there was a pause longer than like one, two, he says, pray on. I'm going, Wow. I've never heard that before. I've never heard anybody in the middle of a prayer gathering going, pray on. In fact, since that time, I've never heard anybody say that. And I hadn't really thought about that phrase, pray on, until I was hanging out in Luke 18, because I realized it didn't originate with Harry. It originates with Jesus. And he comes to us and he says, don't give up. Pray on. Pray on. So what is it about prayer? that not only raises our guilt, le guilt level. Do you, do you just start feeling a little guilty if you're a Christ follower going, oh, I really stink in this area of my life. I'm not really a good prayer. Me too. What is it about prayer? That we know it's so important, but it's so hard to do. What, what is it about prayer that we know it's God's invitation to just hang out with him and talk to him, but we so rarely do it? So... When did you stop praying? When did you give up? I think there's something that's really interesting in chapter 18, verse 17 verses, where these, there's like three implicit questions. 
God, do you care? Do you hear what I'm saying? God, could you ever forgive me for what I've done? God, do you really even love me? And I, I think those questions start to get to why it is we often stop praying. So, unanswered prayer, do you have any of those? Is that why you kind of hung up the line and said, you know what, it just doesn't work. I've tried. Man, I was wronged. I was in a hard spot. Everybody around me knew I was wrong. And I was praying for God to just bring justice to bear, make this messy situation right. And it's never happened. I tried. It doesn't work. I prayed and prayed and prayed for my friend, for my family member, my mother, my sister who had cancer. They died. It doesn't work. God doesn't hear our prayers. He doesn't, not mine at least, he doesn't care. The psalmist, David, the man after God's own heart, felt that way. Psalm 13, how long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord, my God. You felt that way. Is it possible we gave up because we really wondered if God could ever forgive us for what we've done? We're starting to believe the lie that says, God's disgusted with you, my fair. I mean, how many times have you done that? You keep doing that. God doesn't want, he's done with you. He doesn't want anything to do with you. He's moved on from you. So just give it up. We turn overwhelmed with our shame, convinced that God would never forgive us. And some wonder if God would ever truly want us around, not because of the things we've done, just because of who we are, and we're so like average or less than average, and we're just on the edges of things. People continue to look over us, pass by us, don't know that we're here. We're just like insignificant. Would God want me? Would he welcome me? Does he love me? These are the questions. So grab your Bible, and let's catch up to them. And see what God teaches us about prayer. Luke chapter 18. So if you're new to the Bible, table of contents is always a great way to go. Uh, it's after Mark's gospel before John. So Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's the third gospel. We're in the 18th chapter. We're in verse 1. So there's the first story. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable. A parable is a story. To show them that they should always pray and not give up. See, that's where Harry got it. Always pray, pray on. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. Literally, attack me means give me a black eye. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, 
when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So, to understand the story, we got to look at the characters. So, we've got the judge, right? So, he's indifferent, he's irresponsible, he's heartless, no compassion, he's super selfish, he's not attentive to the law of the land, nor the law of God. He doesn't care in his indifference what God or the people think. He doesn't care about what this woman is going through. He's very irresponsible when it comes to the charge that he's been, the task that he's been charged with, upholding justice in his day for his people. He, he doesn't care about that. He's irresponsible and he has no compassion for this woman who in her vulnerability has been taken advantage of. And when you think about it, his selfishness is seen in this, that the only reason he moves towards her request that's gone on and on and on is for his own selfish gain, self-interest, so that he won't get beaten up. I don't know if he was worried about physically being attacked or this woman hounding him wherever he goes in public is going to make it clear to everybody around that's hearing her day after day that maybe he isn't a good guy. And so he gives in. Not because of her plight, but because of his plight. When it comes to defending the law of God, the law was clear. God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. Deuteronomy 10, 18, he wasn't. Deuteronomy 27, 19 says, Cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner, from the fatherless, the orphan, or the widow. So he's not connected to the law of the land, to the heart of God, to God's law. And that's the judge. He's definitely the bad guy. So now there's the widow. She's vulnerable, right? She's a widow. She's powerless. She doesn't have a husband. So here's how it worked in his day. In Jesus' day, there wasn't a police force. So if there was something that happened that was wrong and needed to be dealt with, well, th there were judges. But here's how it worked. You didn't wait for someone else to bring the case to the judge. You had to go. Well, she's doing that, right? But the judge had to take the case. If ever, there would be justice served. So she's completely powerless. She's vulnerable. We know that sense of vulnerability. If any of us have aging parents or grandparents, and we see the scams that are coming in to try and get their money. She's vulnerable. She's been taken advantage of. But the one thing she will not let go of is her repeated, persistent plea for justice. So she just keeps pressing the matter, keeps pressing the matter. So in Jesus' story, usually God shows up in some fashion. And God shows up as the antithesis, the antitype to the judge. He's not the judge. He's the complete opposite of the judge. Right? So the judge doesn't care about God. He doesn't care about the woman. Jesus says, but God cares. God cares. And, and you, you may feel like he's not on your radar. No, actually, he, he has chosen you. You're a chosen one. So remember being chosen? That's like special. So remember, we, we sorted it out real quick on the playground. They were picking sides. There was captains. Maybe it was in gym. And you, the worst thing was to be chosen what? Yeah, you remember. But when you were chosen first, man, that felt good. When you got into the school, that felt good. When you got on our knee, on your knee, well, that doesn't sound right. When you got down on your knee and proposed and she said, yes, you felt good, guys, right? And wives, you felt good. We feel good when we're chosen. We're chosen. He's not like the judge 
who's only choosing for himself, he'll bring perfect justice because he cares about our suffering. And the context here in the parable is Jesus coming again when justice will be done quickly. That's really important. He delays now, Peter says, because out of his compassion, he wants people to turn back to God. So there's a delay between D-Day and V-Day, his first coming and his second coming. And when we live in this middle of the story world and we let the circumstances and the feelings of our heart redefine God's character to this place where we go, maybe he doesn't care. Jesus reminds us, no, he does care. It's on his radar. And when he comes, he's going to deal with it swiftly. Because in a moment, when Jesus comes back, not as Savior, but as King, all the wrongs will be righted. All of it. It'll be quick. So, all right, that's the story. Well, Jesus told stories to make a point. So what's the point? It's not this. The reason your prayers haven't been answered is you haven't been badgering God like that woman. You need to badger, 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 badger more. And hey, we live in Madison. We should get that. All right, you are awake. Okay, just checking. So that's not the point of the story. Badger God and then he'll answer the prayer. The reason you don't have answered prayer, you don't badger enough. That's not the point. But the point is, and we understand who God is, that he's a God who cares for us, not like that judge. He's a God who knows our circumstances. He's going to do something about those circumstances that were chosen by him. We, his favor is on us. When we know that, then we will persist in prayer. And here's what chapter 18 is going to repeatedly do. It's going to help us connect our view of God and our prayer life. And the reason our prayer life stinks is because we don't get who God is. And so when we don't know that God is good, don't believe that he's good, that he cares for us, that he's just, we'll disconnect. But when we get it, who he is, we'll persist, we'll pray on. So pray on when the answer hasn't come. And how long you been praying? for that spouse, for that child, for that parent who doesn't yet know Jesus? How long you been praying for that situation where everybody knows, man, you got the short end of that stick. You got a raw deal. Keep praying. Keep praying when your enemy's prospering and you're still reeling. Keep praying when you've been cheated and they're getting away with it. Keep praying when the judicial system completely let you down. Keep praying when you feel powerless, abandoned, uncared for, vulnerable, taken advantage of. Keep, keep praying. We live in the middle of the story and we know the end of the story. And until that day, Jesus say, says, those who endure to the end, endure in faith. Endure is this word, remain under all the hard things and the pressures and the tension of, I believe, but man, my feelings are saying maybe I'm a, I'm a fool to believe. Stay under it, believing in a good God who is going to right all wrongs. Those who persevere to the end, Jesus says, Matthew 10, 24, will be saved. And so how do we pray? With the persistent faith that rests on the goodness of God. 
That's the first story. All right, there's a second story. Verse 9. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this prayer. Now, whenever we're reading the parables, it's that first question, it's that first phrase that sets up, what's this going to be about? It's about, and it's delivered to, people who are confident in their own righteousness. Righteousness, big word, that I have a good standing before God because I'm living rightly. Okay, so here's the story. Two men went up to the temple to pray. People did that. The thinking was, I gotta, I'm closer to God in the temple. Because like he hangs out in the temple. So you, you want to really get connected to God? You really want to jumpstart your prayer life? Start praying in that place. That's where they're going. That's where people went. Not the only place, but that was a significant place. One was a Pharisee, a religious man, right? And the other, he was a scumbag. He was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. Listen to his prayer carefully. God I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers. I thank you that I'm not like the adulterers or even like this scumbag tax collector right here. Scumbag's not in the text. All right, verse 12. God, I fast, just to remind you, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But beat his breast, his chest, and said, God, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you that this man, speaking about the tax collector, rather than the other went home justified before God. And we all go, yeah, I get that. And we're like, no, we don't. Because when everybody was hearing Jesus' story, they all went like this when he said that. <gasps> Who? Because, because a tax collector, let, let me just put it to you in our terms. <clears throat> the, the feelings that they had for a tax collector is the feelings you have for the creep that hangs out at an elementary school or a middle school selling drugs to kids. You go, that's bad. That dude is bad. That is scum city bad. And when they're, when they're hearing about this religious man, they're going, yeah, hello, of course he's good with God. And tax collector, this guy's been extorting us. He's a traitor. He's turned his back on his people. That guy's not right with God. And Jesus says, whoop, just like that. So in case you didn't go, oh, you should have. Where were we? Verse 14, let's read it again. Then you get ready for it, all right, in your heart. You don't have to do audible. It's okay. I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified, declared righteous before God. For all those, here's the proverb, all those who exalt themselves, the Pharisee, will be humbled, will be brought low. And those who humble themselves, like the tax collector, will be exalted. All right, so we're introduced to two men, right? A religious man? You know, we, the Pharisee, we already go. We, we hear Pharisee, we keep going, oh, those are the bad guys. Okay, we've caught up with some of their hearts. Not all of them, but hey, that's not what everybody, when everybody hears this story, they go, those are the good guys. That was a good guy. He had the white hat on, not the black hat. So there's, there's a Pharisee. He's, he's characterized by strength. He's confident. He's 
proud. He's a strong, confident, proud man. In what? In himself. All right? And then there's this weak, humble, broken tax collector. Two men. And they offer two prayers. They're in the same place, praying to the same God, and they have radically different prayers. And their prayer reveals the object of their faith. What are they trusting in? Their faith reveals the makeup of that relationship that they have with God. So let's go to the first guy, the Pharisee's prayer. Um, it's pretty wild. So when you think about his prayer, who's the subject of his prayer? Do you see it? God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Who's the subject? I fast twice a week. He is. So we sometimes use this acrostic in the church to help us guide our prayer life. Acts, adoration, praising God for who he is, confession, confessing our sin, thanksgiving, thanking God for what he's done, for forgiveness, and then kind of a word we don't use anymore, supplication. Yeah. Requests, what I need from God, what I'm asking God for. So think about it. Is there any adoration? Yeah, there's tons of adoration. Of who? Of himself. Makes me think of that song when I was a kid, Mr. Big Stuff. Anyways, all right. So adoration of himself. Confession, nada. He's just affirming, I don't need to confess because I'm really clean. I don't do that stuff. I do this stuff. Thanksgiving, actually, he's convincing God that he should be thankful that he's on his team. Requests, he doesn't need anything. He's self-sufficient, right? That's his prayer. And it's pointing to his confidence in his own righteousness. Jesus, we don't have to, we don't have to dissect that. Jesus tells us that's where his confidence is. And so his, he's pointing out his life of negation. He doesn't steal. He doesn't do evil. He doesn't commit adultery. He's not like the scumbag tax collector. In his life of devotion, his affirmation and what he affirms in his life. He fasts twice a week. He gives 10%. He tithes. So by now you know he's a bad guy. So don't make this connection that fasting and tithing, well, that's bad because he's bad and he's doing it. That's not good. No, that's good. That's good. It's good to fast, to say, God, I'm going to give up food to just focus on you. It's good to tithe, to say, God, everything I have from you, this tithe, this tenth represents you have all my life. Those are good things, but they become bad things when they become the things that we put our confidence in, that that's why God lets me in. That's why God thinks I'm a good guy. That's when it's bad. That's when it's messed up. He's messed up there. Now, the tax collector. His prayer points to his complete brokenness and humility. He doesn't have confidence in anything that he's bringing to the table. Rather, his own inability to live a life that's honoring to God, subsumed in the two great commandments, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving your neighbor as himself. He's going, I didn't do that. I haven't done that. He's really aware of his sin. It brings him to this place where he prays this simple, life-changing prayer. Has this ever been your prayer? Is this continually your prayer, my prayer. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's a game changer. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
And, and we go, well, yeah, that's, yeah, I did that. Like, I, I put my faith in Christ. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. I needed a Savior. He's my Savior. I put my faith in him, and I prayed for God's mercy. And that's how I got in the door. And then we go, well, isn't it just like you get in the door, you take off your jacket, you put it in the closet? No, you don't take that off. You don't take that humility off. That's every day of the journey with Christ. So when you think about it, this guy had nothing but a prayer. We say that. Nothing but a prayer. And a beautiful prayer it was. Full of humility, refreshing honesty. No wonder Jesus liked to hang around. It's not like because you're a sinner, you're honest. But sinners are acquainted. That's why he hung out with sinners and tax collectors. They're, they're honest. They're not trying to put on a veneer, a mask, a show. He's truly sorrowful. He's beating his chest. It reminds me of that night when, when my friend broke into our room in the middle of the night and he fell at the foot of my bed and he began to just weep and sob. He's this big giant of a guy. And... He'd been struggling with sexual purity and it didn't go well that night and he was broken up about it. That's this guy. That's actually healthy. When we go, ah, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Ah, oh, there's a lot of other people doing it. That's not a good place. That's not a place to receive God's forgiveness. So when you're broken, you pray for one thing, mercy, mercy. When you're truly broken, when you're truly repentant, you pray for one thing, mercy. That's what David did after his adultery with Bathsheba, Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. And we find out that that prayer for mercy is a big time game changer because Jesus says there's two guys who walked in that offered two different kinds of prayers that had two different kinds of spiritual resumes and they had two different kinds of relationships with me. One was phony. It was make-believe. It was pretend. The other, as he hung on to my mercy moved to reality. It was a real relationship. And the result is one guy who's confident goes home thinking he's good. The other probably unsure going probably not. And Jesus says, but actually what happened is the one who pled for mercy and didn't rest on his merits, he's the one who went home justified. And so maybe you're wondering, could God ever forgive me Maybe you're wondering, would God still forgive me? Because I'm still, I'm still a mess. This is, this is really good news. This is good news. That, that he loves to extend mercy. That he throws a party for people who repent and turn to him. And so don't believe the lie that says, you know, actually you've gone too far. Think about this. There's nothing you have done that would cause God to love you less than he already does. 
And on the flip side, this might be the aha, there's nothing you could do today that would cause God to love you even more. And so his mercy's available to all listening to me now. Available. And we just got to just say this. If our relationship with God is based on our merits and not on mercy, then it's phony. So remember how we grew up? So I got three sisters, so there are dolls everywhere. I couldn't help it. But I had soldiers, and I had G.I. Joes and all that stuff. But anyways, when we're, pray- when we're playing as kids with our stuff, what, what are we doing, man? We're having conversations. It's real, right? Kind of not. And, and, and a relationship with God that is resting on your merit, that's playing with your dolls and your G.I. Joes. You think it's real, but it's not. It's not. And so let's just say what this text is saying by implication. Churches are a good place to be, but a dangerous place to hang out. Because at the same time, a church can grow real faith, and the same time, the church can be a greenhouse that grows phony faith. A counterfeit faith. And if we forget that every moment of every day we are dependent, desperately dependent upon God's mercy, then this could be a really dangerous place. Man, it's good that you're here. It's good that we're connecting together as community. It's good that we're singing praise to God. It's good that we're hearing God's teaching. But man, if this stuff doesn't change our heart and and unveil that our heart still desperately today, though saved by God's grace alone, doesn't need Christ today, this is a dangerous place where we quickly, slowly, not quickly, slowly morph into this just external religiosity that has nothing that's real to it. There's nothing real in us. It's just, we're just playing a game. Paul says of this very thing, 1 Timothy 1, 15. And I want you, to, as I read it, I want you to pick out the most startling word. It'll be interesting what you come up with. It's not a right answer, it's just so you know. This is a trustworthy state saying, Paul says. And everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. See that little word, am? I think that's the big word. Because when we know about Paul, so if you don't know about Paul, you're new to the Bible, Paul was this Jewish guy who was fanatical. He was a Pharisee, and he was out to snuff out all of Christ and his followers. And so he's chasing them down. He's throwing them in jail. He's even responsible for the death of some of those followers. And so we go, yeah, duh, he was a bad dude. But he doesn't say, I was. Look at it. He says, I am. That's honest. That's not, oh, that's just hyperbole. He's just exact. No, he believed it with all his heart. Not that he was, that he is the worst of sinners. So that like, does that work? Does that work here at Dirt Creek? I think it does. I think we're good at extending grace and going, we're not perfect people. We serve a perfect savior and we're good when people tell their messy stories of grace. We, that's who we are. 
Are we? Are we? So if your spouse said, I'm the worst of sinners, if your child said that, if your parents said that, if your pastor said that, are we good with that? Are we going, uh, uh, uh? I mean, before Christ, I get it. Now, dude, what's wrong with you? Clean it up. So, the persistent faith rests in the goodness of God. The humble faith clings to the mercy of God. And now we have this dependent faith that receives the love of God. It's the story about the kids, verse 15. So people were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. So like, that's a strong word. That's what Jesus does to demons. Just kind of remember that. All right, strong. They rebuked him. But Jesus called the children to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Okay, so let's catch up to children in Jesus' day because we're thinking about children in our day. And it's easy for us to center our lives, our world, our marketing on kids. That's, that wasn't a problem. There wasn't any empty nester in Jesus' day where their marriage fell apart because they built their lives around their kids. It didn't happen. So it wasn't that long ago where the byword in, for children in our day was children should be not... All right. I know, some of you are still waking up. Some of you are going, what are you talking about? Children should be seen, not heard. And the young people are going, what? Yes, yes. You knew your place as a kid and you, you, you didn't try and get to the center of things. You just knew you were like out to the edges, okay? In Jesus' day, when he says to his disciples, you need to be a servant, you need to be like the least in society. He said, like a child. So just so we catch up with what's going on when he says this, it's not like the disciples see the little kids and go, oh, Jesus just loves kids. We love kids. Look at that curly hair. Look at that dimple. Oh, Jesus is going to love. That's not their feeling towards kids. Kids are like, what are you? they're like a nuisance. They're like a bother. Like, get out of here. We don't, Jesus doesn't have time for you. He's on to more important things. All right, you catching up? Catching up with the ideas that are going through the hearers of this story. So Jesus, seeing what's happened, says, let him come. He says, God's kingdom belongs to those. And he says, those kids help us know the way in, the key, the key in. So right away, Jesus says, hey, these, these children that represent the marginalized, the insignificant, the looked over, the passed over, the pushed to the side people, these are important to Jesus. They're important to God. In fact, when you start chasing through God's disposition towards the poor, towards the widow, towards the orphan, towards the refugee, the foreigner, the prisoner, you find out that God doesn't just have equal concern for them. He has preferential concern. Preferential treatment is granted because God's heart is close to the brokenhearted. And so Jesus shows us the heart of the Father, important to God, welcomed, loved, blessed. And Jesus teaches us a huge thing that not only does the kingdom belong to them, but they show us the way in. 
What does that mean? Receive the kingdom like a little child. What does that mean? It means to have complete, 100% dependence upon God like a child. And that word here is for an infant, for a baby, for like a child has for who's ever taking care of mom, dad, whoever. So think about it. When a child's born, they can't do anything for themselves. Nothing. They can't feed themselves. They can't dress themselves. They can't walk anywhere. They, they can't do any of that. They're completely dependent. Jesus is saying, that's saving faith. That's the kind of faith I want. Wholehearted dependence upon me. Trusting in my love. Trusting in my love. So what's your view of God? Is he a God who cares for you? Is he a God who's in control and make all things right? Is he a God who is merciful and forgiving? Is he a God who loves you and accepts you and wants to bless you? Our view of God is either helping or hindering our prayer life. Which is it? What's just hit me between the eyes this week is, Mark, your, your struggles with your prayer life is not just a matter of discipline. I go, I just need to be more disciplined. I just, I need to get it more in my schedule. I, I you know, I'm just thinking about, okay, well, I'm going to do this. It's like, Mark, the reason you don't pray like you ought to pray is because you still don't see the Father for who he is. Your view of God will have everything to do with your relationship with God. And a window into that is prayer. What's your view of yourself? So there's two guys in this story. One that's got his, no, he's up like this. God, it's me. I know, I'm great. And then there's this guy, he's like this. So how, how do we see ourselves? Look, we're creating the image of God. So we need to see that everybody has dignity and worth. You have great dignity. But we ought not to take pride in ourselves because of what we've done, but who we are as created in the image of God. How do you see yourself? And is there any room in this vision of yourself for I'm broken? There's things that aren't straight in my life that Christ needs to make straight. And I'm the cause of brokenness in this world. Is that any way a part of the fabric of how I see myself? If not, if I don't see myself as needing God's mercy, why would I pray for mercy? Why would I connect to God? I don't need God. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One left confidently, the other unsure. How are you going to leave today? How are you going to leave today? So here's my challenge. Summer. It's like this little window. It's the glory of Madison, right? The summer. So what are you going to do this summer? I'm going to challenge you. Let's pray on. Maybe just pick it up and start praying, but pray on. So there's two great books that are mentioned in your study notes, the questions. Two great books. Once, I'm just going to tell you, Keller's a deep dive. So if you, if you want to be stretched, feel like you're going back to school, it's great. Theologically rooted, great book. 
The other millers, oh man, that is just so street level, really encouraging. Give you some things, both of them give you some helpful tips. Here's another one. You go, no, 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 reader. All right, but you, you gotta be in the word. So this summer, get in the Psalms. There isn't anything you feel. There isn't any subject you're wrestling with. There isn't any prayer that you should be praying now that isn't in the Psalms. So let the Psalms jumpstart your prayer life. Here's a cool thing to do as a couple. Read a psalm at night and just pray back the psalm. You read a verse, one of you prays. Just whatever God brings into your mind relative to that verse. Maybe it's prayer, maybe it's confession, maybe it's thanksgiving, maybe it's a request. Use the psalm to jumpstart your prayer life. Deal? This summer, pray on. Let's pray. Lord, there's um, just hurting people here, like that widow, like that tax collector, like the children of Jesus' day pushed to the side. And I pray that you draw them in as Lord Jesus, you're lifted up in this place. You are a great advocate, Jesus. You are a redeemer. And, and you are God's love in the flesh. I pray that you draw them to yourself. I pray that you'd be merciful to us for our lack of prayer. Be merciful for us that we are actually more interested in learning about all these other things that aren't all that important. And you, the king of this universe, you actually desire us to hang out with you. So open our eyes, Lord, as we get into your word. Keep this church centered on Jesus. May, will this, may this be a, a greenhouse that, that grows the real thing. May our kids be blessed in this place because we're not looking down on people, but we keep looking to you for mercy and grace. Lord, as we go, your church, this week to the places we work and play and call home, may we be filled with grace and with truth. May we be pointing people to your Son, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.